He was born in the English village of Elstow in the year 1628. And as an infant, his parents had him baptized in the Church of England. But as he grew older, he developed a hellish enthusiasm for mischief and perversion and ungodliness. And when he was 21 years old, he married a young woman whose father gave them two Christian books as a wedding gift. And this man read the books and became convinced that he needed to clean up his godless mess of a life. And so they started attending church services where they sang the songs and they prayed the prayers and they heard the Bible preached. But though he did all these things, his heart was never really changed. And he soon fell back into his old, well-worn ruts of sin. Then one day he overheard a group of women at their doorstep talking about spiritual rebirth and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the love and saving power of Jesus. And if anything, he knew that they had something that he didn't have. And so he began to seek them out and talk with them about these things. And, um, but many years passed before he would finally look away from himself his efforts to change, his performance and trust fully in Christ and in his power to save a desperately sinful man. And when he did, he was made to see that Christ alone was his righteousness. And he soon began preaching and teaching and writing about the gospel. And just one year later, when he was only 28 years old, he began publishing books And within two years, the fame of this young preacher and teacher and writer had spread throughout all of England, which put a huge target on his back when in 1660, King Charles II rose to power and soon began a countrywide persecution of Christians who didn't belong to the Church of England. See, this was a problem for our young preacher, teacher, and writer because he was a Baptist. And he was threatened with imprisonment if he would not stop preaching. So at this point, he had two choices. Back down, cease proclaiming the gospel that had saved his soul and spare his life. Or stand firm, continue to proclaim the gospel of God's grace through Jesus and go to jail, facing a dark and uncertain future. 2,000 other English pastors chose the former and abandoned their pulpits. But in faith, he did not back down. He continued preaching and was thrown in prison. And after a three-month prison sentence, he was told this. He was said, you will be a free man if you will just stop preaching. And this was his response. He said, sir... If I am freed today, I will preach tomorrow. And he spent the next 12 years of his life in prison. But behind those bars, he would pen what would become the second best-selling book in the world after the Bible. A book that would be translated into over 200 languages. And a book that would become the most famous allegory of the Christian life. The Pilgrim's Progress. The name of this young preacher, teacher, and writer was a man of great faith 
named John Bunyan. John Bunyan knew that God in his grace had saved him from a hell that he deserved and could not escape on his own. And as a radically changed man, he was ready to give up everything for the sake of knowing and proclaiming and following Christ that he would receive the glory he is due and that perhaps just one more person might be saved by God's grace through his preaching. John Bunyan would never stop proclaiming. Even when King Charles II and the Church of England seemed to be like giants, much bigger and stronger and more powerful than him, John Bunyan would never stop proclaiming even when 2,000 of his fellow pastors like little grasshoppers in the shadow of these giants had abandoned their pulpits in fear. John Bunyan would never stop proclaiming even when it cost him greatly because in the strength of his faith he knew that in Christ he had all things and that he was in his hands. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Bible, chapter 13. And this morning we're going to examine a significant event in Israel's history on their journey to the promised land. And we're also going to talk about giants and grasshoppers and how to see through eyes of faith. But before we dig in, let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, and errant word this morning. Your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, even very dark paths that we may find ourselves on. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would bring the light of your truth to those darkened parts of our hearts and our minds, that we would understand your word and see Jesus through your word and love your word, and apply your word for our good and your glory. Amen. So this story begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God sought out a pagan man named Abram and said to Abram, hey, leave all of your gods, leave your family, and come and follow me. And then God later renamed Abram Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, and that he would give to Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. Uh, and the people of Abraham would be God's people. And by a divine miracle, Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, had a son named Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob, and then God later renamed Jacob Israel, and the people of God became known as the Israelites. And then fast forward a bit, and in the book of Exodus, God's chosen people, the Israelites, become enslaved under Egypt, and that lasts for 430 years, but in a great exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt through a man named Moses, and he gives them his law and commandments, and then he begins to lead them to the promised land, Canaan, the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And by this time, Israel had witnessed a remarkable fulfillment of God's promise that Abraham's descendants would be numerous because here at this point in the chapter we're gonna read, there are about two million Israelites, 600,000 of which are strong, able-bodied fighting men. So they have an army. 
And here in Numbers chapter 13, Israel has come to the border of Canaan, okay? The promised land, the land God promised to Abraham. So looking at verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So here we see God telling Moses to send spies into the land of Canaan. But what's interesting is that we know from the first chapter of Deuteronomy, where Moses is later recalling these events, is that it was actually the people of Israel who first went to Moses asking to spy out the land before the conquest. And evidently Moses presented this request to God and God said, okay, go ahead, send men into the land to spy it out. But look at what God says about the land here in verse two. He says, the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Is there any question mark at the end of that sentence? God is saying, go ahead, spy out the land, but remember this, I am God. My every word proves true. This land is called the promised land for a reason, and you can trust my promises. And what an encouragement it must have been to have God's guarantee of success by a promise. Let's keep reading from the end of verse two. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the people of Israel. So these chiefs, these heads, were kind of like the pastors of Israel. And God told Moses to send one of them out from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So there would be 12 men sent out on this recon mission to get a look at the land before they entered it. Verse four, and these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zachar. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sadi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vafsi. From the tribe of Gad, Geul, the son of Machi. These were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Okay, so who here or any parent has ever Google searched biblical baby names or baby names from the Bible? Right, you find some interesting names that if you love your kid, you'd never name them, right? But you do find some really cool names because they have a particular meaning. And one of those cool names is Joshua, which in the Hebrew, Yehoshua or Yeshua, means the Lord is salvation. Do you think Moses was confident in the Lord and his promises to rename Hosea Joshua? And do you think it would have been encouraging for Joshua to receive this new name, the Lord is salvation, as a reflection of Moses' faith in God's promises? Let's keep reading, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and come into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. 
whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So Moses is telling him, get a look at the land itself and get a look at the inhabitants of the land. And so of the land, he wants them to find out if it's good land or bad land, if it's rich land or poor land, if there are trees in it or no trees in it. He's essentially asking if it's a fertile place with good soil, if it's a place of life and abundance, if it's a place where plants and trees and fruits grow. And of the inhabitants, he wants them to find out if they're strong or weak, few or many, dwelling in camps or dwelling in strongholds. He's essentially asking them, do they seem powerful? Are there a lot of them? And does it seem that they're there to stay and not just camping? That's what he's asking. And so Moses also asked the spies to bring back one thing, some of the fruit of the land, for it was the first season. It was the season of the first ripe grapes. Verse 21. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Now, one of the first places they come to is very significant. They go up the Negev and come to Hebron. Do you know that if you go to Hebron in Israel today, you can visit a cave there, though you can't go inside, that's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. And in that cave are the tombs of Abraham and his wife Sarah. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and Jacob and his wife, Leah. See, what happened was hundreds of years before this recon mission here in the book of Numbers, Abraham acquired this cave and the field it was in in faith of the fulfillment of God's promise that he and his descendants would one day possess this land. This meant that the cave and the field that it was in was a piece of land in Canaan that the Israelites already had possession of. This piece of land was already a partial fulfillment of God's promise of the land to Israel. And what an encouragement it must have been to the spies to see with their own eyes a piece of land that they already had. And verse 22 also mentions that some of the descendants of Anak were there. And Anak in the Hebrew means neck. And the descendants of Anak were famous for being a head length or two above everyone else. They were giants. Okay? They were giants. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. And they came to the valley of Eshcol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. I think this is really cool. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Wow. Does anyone here like grapes? I think this is amazing. This is so cool. They cut down a single giant cluster of grapes so large that it had to be carried by two people with a pole between them. 
It sounds like something so unnecessarily large that it had been genetically modified or had mutated after falling into a vat of toxic waste or was just from Costco. (laughs) This is good land. This is rich land. This is their land. How encouraging. Verse 25, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land which you sent us, to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, I want to say two things here. First of all, when I was a kid, and I heard these Bible stories told in Sunday school, and I heard that the promised land was flowing with milk and honey, I had always visualized as a kid that this was kind of a magical place where there were literally white flowing streams of honey and sticky streams of golden honey. Anyone else? Okay, just me. Okay. Uh, And I would often spend most of these Sunday school hours just daydreaming about being in the promised land and lapping up all of the milk and gobs of honey that I could stomach, kind of like that kid in the chocolate river in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And to be honest, I thought that with manna and quail from heaven and water from a rock in a particular episode of Veggie Tales that there were good reasons to believe that the promised land was literally flowing with milk and honey. However, I just want to dispel this myth here and now. Most commentators say that this phrase, milk and honey, is more metaphoric than literal, uh, referring to the good pasture for livestock to graze on because, of course, livestock produce milk and the good farmland and plants because, of course, bees could draw nectar from them and make honey. Okay, so that's what was probably meant by the phrase milk and honey. So sorry if that was discouraging for any of you. (laughs) Second, and more importantly, before we move on, I want to draw attention to some of the really cool things we've seen so far, some of these encouraging things, okay? So there are five things in particular. Number one, God himself said that he was giving them this land. Number two, Moses renamed Hosea Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation as a reflection of his faith in God's promise. Number three, God sent out 12 of the leaders, the pastors, to spy out the land. If anyone's going to come back with a good report and see God's providential hand over the whole situation, it's going to be the pastors, right? Number four, the spies come to Hebron, where their ancestors are buried. They see a piece of land they already own. They see already a partial fulfillment of God's promise. And number five, this land is good land. It produces many fruits, big fruits, and it's flowing with milk and honey. And so the spies return. They give their report. They thank God for his promises, faithfulness, and provision. Then Moses rouses the troops And in faith and with God on their side, they rush into Canaan and they storm the strongholds and they defeat the giants and they take the land. Right? That's what happens, right? Because the spies have just said the land is good and uh, check out some of the fruits we brought back. Look, have some of the Costco-sized grapes. 
what happens? Verse 28 happens. Verse 28, the spies continue their report. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And their cities, the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea. And along the Jordan, they're saying, there are enemies on enemies on enemies out there. Verse 30, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb, one of the spies, says, guys, we can do this. God promised this land to us. We've been calling Hosea Joshua, the Lord of salvation. Guys, we're the leaders, the pastors of Israel. And, and, and we saw Hebron. We saw the piece of land that's already ours. And we have 600,000 fighting men and God on our side. We have God on our side. Verse 31, but the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Now in Numbers chapter 14, the next chapter, which we're gonna look at next week, we find out that Joshua takes Caleb's side. But the rest of the spies here in chapter 13 bring back a bad report of the land. Some translations say an evil report. And the reason some translations say that it was an evil report is because their report was dishonest and it was faithless and it was blasphemous. How so? Well, it was dishonest because they say in verse 32 that it's a land that devours its inhabitants. But this land was laden with God's promises. It was the resting place of the patriarchs. It was a land that produced much fruit and was flowing with milk and honey. This was good land. And this was their land promised to them by God. And in the same verse, they say, all the people we saw in the land are of great height. Okay, we know that they claimed to see the Anakim and the Nephilim, but they also mention the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and they weren't giants. It was not true that everyone in the land was a giant. That was a huge exaggeration. Those were two lies. Their report was dishonest. And their report was faithless because they say in verse 31, we are not able to go up against the people. But God promised them this land and led them to this land and promised to be with them when they entered into this land. And he had proved himself faithful to them over and over and over. And yet somehow it still wasn't enough for them to trust in him. Notice also that the first result of the people's faithlessness in God 
was a distorted view of themselves. They say in verse 33, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. Can you believe that this was spoken by the very people who were uniquely chosen by the all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign God who created the universe and everything in it and considered them of all people to be his treasured possession? These were God's people. God's people. See, their report was actually blasphemous because the real reason the spies saw themselves as grasshoppers was because they saw God as a grasshopper too. Listen, they thought they weren't strong enough because they didn't think God was strong enough. They thought they were too small because they thought God was too small. They didn't consider what they were capable of because they didn't consider what God was capable of and capable of doing through them by his strength and power. In their eyes, the giants were bigger than God. Their view of God was small. Furthermore, think about what they were really communicating about God when they said it's a land that devours its inhabitants. They were saying if we go in there, we're gonna be consumed. They were saying this great promised land that God is leading us to, it's a death trap. They were saying God is trying to kill us. I can't help but think of a passage from John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, here. And so in this book, the main character, Christian, is traveling to this uh, heavenly celestial city. And he journeys throughout many lands, and he meets any, many interesting people along the way, and he faces many threats and terrors and distractions that threaten to throw him off his course. And at one point in the book, Christian comes upon the valley of the shadow of death, which is a dry desert um, that he has to go through to get to the celestial city. And at this point, when he reaches the valley, he sees two men running back toward him in fear. And this is how their conversation goes. Christian says, where are you going? And they said, back, back, and we would have you to do so too if either life or peace is prized by you. Why, what, what's the matter? Said Christian. Matter, said they, we were going that way as you were going and went as far as we dared. And indeed, we were almost past coming back. For had we gone a little further, we wouldn't have been here to bring the news to you. But what have you met with, said Christian? Why, we were almost in the valley of the shadow of death, but we happened to look before us and saw the danger before we came to it. But what have you seen, said Christian? Seen? Why the valley itself, which is dark as pitch? We also saw there the hobgoblins, satyrs, and dragons of the pit. We heard also in that valley a continual howling and yelling. And over that valley hangs the discouraging clouds of confusion. Death always spreads his wings over it. And then said Christian, I perceive not yet by what you have said, but that this is my way to the celestial city. And they said, be it your way. We will not choose it for ours. And so they parted. They went their separate ways. Christian went through the valley of the shadow of death, and you know what? It was a scary place. 
But as Christian walked through that valley, he walked in the strength of faith. Even though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, he feared no evil, for God was with him. And God was his comfort, his strength, his joy, his light in the darkness, his hope, and his great reward. And I can't help but think about how this passage in the Pilgrim's Progress was a picture of what the author himself who wrote this book from prison was going through. Instead of turning back and leaving his pulpit like 2,000 other pastors did, John Bunyan continued his course and journeyed right through the valley of the shadow of death in the strength of faith. For John Bunyan, his character Christian, and Caleb and Joshua, they all saw the same things that others did, right? For, for John Bunyan and all the other pastors, it was the threat of King Charles II and the Church of England. For Christian and the two men, it was the valley of the shadow of death. And for Caleb and Joshua and all the other spies, it was the giants in the land of Canaan. But though they all saw the same things, they saw them through different eyes. Though they all saw the same thing, they saw them through different eyes. What do I mean? There are two ways to view the world. Number one, through natural eyes. Through natural eyes. And number two, through eyes of faith. Through eyes of faith. With their natural eyes, Caleb and Joshua and the spies saw the land of Canaan and all that was in it. But for Caleb and Joshua, they saw God and his promises and his power over and above it all. But the other spies, they saw just the land and all that was in it. They didn't see God. They didn't trust his promises. They didn't walk in his power. And though I'd like to read this passage and immediately see myself as a Caleb or a Joshua, I think that I most often identify with the other spies. How about you? How many of us have ever given in to peer pressure at school or in the workplace or around our friends or family and have either condoned something wrong or participated in something wrong because we were deathly afraid about what they would think about us or say about us. If you fear man more than God, then you're not seen through eyes of faith. That you already have God's approval in Christ, and that's the only approval you need. How many of us have ever tried extra hard to be a good person and have gone to church more and have read our Bible more and have tried to be friendlier to people? to be considered more righteous in the eyes of God. If you're basing your standing with God on anything you could ever do or say, then you're not seen through eyes of faith that Christ alone is your righteousness and that there is no good in you apart from him. How many of us, listen to this, how many of us have ever bought into the cultural lie that we need to love ourselves more because... If we don't, then there will be no one left to love us as much as we do. 
If you are doing anything and everything to love yourself more because you're afraid that if you don't, then you won't be loved, then you're not seen through eyes of faith, that God loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And seeing that frees you up to go out and love others. How many of us have ever known that God was calling us to do something, but we just plugged our ears, turned our eyes, and only found excuses for why we can't do it? If you're the kind of person who is always able to come up with a thousand reasons for why you can't do something that God may be calling you to do, then you're not seeing through eyes of faith that God wouldn't have called you to do that thing if he wasn't right there, right by your side, giving you the grace to do it. In each of these examples, we find a failure to trust in God, a lack of faith, unbelief, And I don't know about you guys, but all of these examples have been true of me and caused me to identify myself with not Caleb and Joshua, but the other spies. So my question in reading this passage is how can we get faith like Caleb and Joshua? How can we be strong in faith? Well, first, I think I know how not to do it. Because I've discovered in myself an ungodly tendency to often think of my faith as being in God, but then to walk out my front door and in practice actually find my faith in myself, in my abilities, my strength, my willpower. And I think a couple of influences on man's tendency to place faith in himself are, number one, this culture. This culture, which ever since the time of the Renaissance has been boldly declaring this humanistic idea that man is the measure of all things, autonomous and independent. This idea was expressed well in Michelangelo's David, a towering 17-foot statue of a man carved out of marble with a giant right hand that is disproportionately large compared to the rest of his 17-foot body, making the bold declaration that man is strong. Man is powerful. Man is confident of the future. And I think that these ideas are subtly reinforced by our culture today in little seemingly harmless sayings like, believe in yourself. Number two, another unfortunate influence on man's tendency to place faith in himself is some Christian teaching today which is so self-motivating and so self-focused and so positive thinking and devoid of any scripture that it seems to leave no place for or need of Jesus. This kind of teaching will say things like, you can do all things without saying, through Christ who gives you strength. Philippians 4.13. Or, we are more than conquerors without saying, through him who loved us, Romans eight thirty seven, Or the horse is prepared for the day of battle without saying, but the victory belongs to the Lord, Proverbs 21, 31. And of course, another great downfall and on the other side of the coin of this inward focused faith in oneself is that when you can't come through or when you aren't good enough, it destroys you. You feel worthless. 
I think that this was the dilemma for the other spies. They looked to themselves and they found no strength or power and all hope was lost. But I think the strength of Caleb and Joshua was that they weren't placing their faith in themselves. See, while the other spies compared the giants to themselves, Caleb and Joshua compared the giants to God. And I think that Numbers chapter 13 shows us three specific reasons for why Caleb and Joshua saw through eyes of faith while the other spies didn't. Number one, Caleb and Joshua trusted God's promises for the future. Trust God's promises for the future. In verse one, we're reminded that this is the land God is giving. There's no question mark here. God is giving to the people of Israel according to the promise God made to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And so when the spies went on this recon mission, they were to see everything through the lens of God's promise that God was giving everything they saw in the land into their hands. This is to see through eyes of faith that no giant or anything else in all creation could ever stop God's promises from being made or fulfilled. Trust God's promises for the future. Number two, Caleb and Joshua remembered God's faithfulness in the past. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. Of course, God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and had provided them manna and quail from heaven and water from a rock supernaturally and had led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to the promised land. Furthermore, there are about two million of them now. A remarkable fulfillment of God's promise that Abraham's descendants would be numerous. And the land was good land and fertile land just as God promised it would be back in the book of Exodus. And in verse 22, the spies go up into the Negev and come to Hebron, the place where the patriarchs are buried, the one piece of land in Canaan that they already had. In this way, God had already been faithful in partially fulfilling part of his promise to Israel. The spies were to see everything in Canaan, especially Hebron, through the lens of God's faithfulness. God had been faithful to them already in so many ways. This is to see through eyes of faith that no giant or anything else in all creation could ever stop God from being the faithful God he is. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. And number three, Caleb and Joshua walked in God's power in the present. Walk in God's power in the present. In verses 32 and 33, the spies bring back a bad report of the land, highlighting how big the people in the land were and how small they were in comparison to them. And I don't doubt that the spies were small in comparison to them. And you know what? I don't think God's purpose in sending his people into the land was for them to come back saying, ha, piece of cake, we got this. I think God's intention was for them to go into the land and come back saying, oh my goodness, they're way too big for us. But God is bigger. He can do it. And his promises will prove true. 
And his faithfulness will be seen not because of us, but because of him. The spies were to see the conquest of Canaan through the lens of God's power. That with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is to see through eyes of faith that no giant or anything else else in all creation could ever stop God from overcoming even the most daunting enemies. Walk in God's power in the present. I think Numbers chapter 13 teaches us that the strength of our faith is only as good as what we trust is the strength of God. Let me say that again. The strength of our faith is only as good as what we trust is the strength of God. See, Caleb and Joshua's faith was strong because they trusted that God was strong. But the other spies' faith was weak because they either didn't trust that God was strong or were just trusting in themselves and not in God at all. But what about us? What does our faith look like? And what kind of promises, faithfulness, and power do we have from God? Because we didn't have an exodus from slavery. We, we didn't have supernatural bread and water. We don't have a land that God is leading his people to. We don't have a guy on our team named Joshua. We don't have a tomb that secures our place in a land, right? We don't have any of those things, right? Well, actually, we did have an exodus from slavery, from the slavery of our sin accomplished on a cross. And we do have supernatural bread and water. He calls himself the bread of life and the living water of eternal life. And we do have a guy on our team named Joshua, Yehoshua or Yeshua is his Hebrew name, his Greek name is Jesus. And we do have a promised land that God is leading his people to. A greater promised land in heaven, in the presence of God forever. But it's true that we don't have an occupied tomb. We have an empty one. Amen. Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, stepped off his heavenly throne, left the greater promised land of heaven, and came into our wilderness. This world drowning and dying in sin and rebellion and unbelief. Jesus came and lived the perfect, sinless life that we ought to live before the holy God, but cannot. And then went before his people when our sin prevented us access into this greater promised land in the presence of God. And he completed the conquest, as it were by taking down our greatest enemy. A giant far too big for us to slay on our own and the only giant that can truly hurt God's people. Our own sin. He was then buried in a tomb to secure a spot in that great promised land for all who would turn away from their sin and trust in him for salvation. And then he walked out of that grave three days later in victory and ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for his people everywhere, praying that they will not faithlessly fall away. Jesus 
trusted in God the Father alone, not us. Jesus tasted our death that we might receive his life. Jesus took upon himself our lifetime of sin and bore the wrath of God against us that we might receive his mercy. Jesus was victorious over our greatest enemy that we might receive his victory and then walk in that victory every day, no longer living lives of fear and faithlessness, but saying, the Lord is my helper. Who shall I fear? What can man do to me? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And oh, Lord God, even when I am faithless, you are faithful to those who love you. John Bunyan, his character Christian, and Caleb and Joshua didn't see themselves as grasshoppers because they had faith in a big God, a God much bigger than the giants and a God who was on their side. And their God is the same God we worship today. And so if we are going to face our giants in this life, we need to see God as God trusting in his great and precious promises, remembering his faithfulness in Jesus, and walking in his power that he graciously supplies by his Holy Spirit. When we see him for who he is, and for what he's done, and for what he's promised to do, and for what he's capable of doing, perhaps even through you and I, we see through eyes of faith. So take heart, see Jesus, Trust in him, and soon your giants will start to look like the grasshoppers. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, let us lay these truths upon our hearts that through your son Jesus, our greatest giant is dead and no longer has the enslaving power it used to have over us. Lord, help us to remember, trust in, and walk in the power of Christ as you lead us in this life to yourself. For your glory alone. Amen.